This is For Your Ears Only, the audio series that takes some deep dives into the world of podcasting. I'm Lance Dan. And I'm Martin Spinelli. And today on For Your Ears Only, we're going to be talking about podcasting editing and aesthetics. Another way to put that is we're going to be focusing on not just what podcasting speech means, but also what it sounds like and how it can be sculpted and manipulated to have an effect on listeners. And Lance, we're going to begin somewhere totally different. We're going to begin deep in the bowels of a menacing, giant, global corporation that quite literally bleeds its interns dry. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Yep. That's the University of Sussex, isn't it? (laughs) Where we are at the moment. No, that's – you're talking about Blood Culture, which was an audio drama I produced last year. And I think you've queued up the introduction, haven't you? Um, This is the beginning of the show where Aisha is working at a faceless techno mega corporation called Meta. And I have her. And then we're falling, tumbling, tangled to the ground. She bites me. She scratches at me. I won't let her go. We roll and clutch and struggle. I catch her wrist and slap her hand to the ground. And a vial falls from her hand, spilling red paint onto the floor. Take them. Hands pull us apart. Hold them. Wrestling us in place. Control them. Crushing us down. Wow. This is most discordant. So, Lance, I want to talk to you about this and how you put this together. What were some of the things you were thinking about when you sat down at the computer to edit the audio of this together? This is the first five minutes of a 10-hour story. So it really, really had to be super tight and really draw people in. So everything had to be synchronized and syncopated. All the emotional and dramatic hits had to really, really work. So there was a huge amount of work just, just getting everything to flow and for the right moments of music and sound and voice to come together to reinforce the drama. In this particular excerpt that we heard, were you editing the speech to the music or the music to the speech? That one there, I wanted to keep uh, some of the naturalism of the actor's performance in. So I slaved the music to the speech and bumped around and basically remixed Claire Singer's track underneath so that the strings were rising just at the right dramatic moment or the drums were coming in to sort of counterpoint various things. So it was very much like led by the voice. Whereas later on, there are pieces and moments where the music controls and the voices are cut to hit the beats of the music. It's always keeping that relationship closer so they feel the music and the voice are from the same world. So in in a bigger picture sense, though, when you were putting this together and when you're editing in general, how do you think about the connection between story and sound? I think to anyone who's like us who's been working around sound for a very long time, it's a very natural connection. I don't think there's anything much to make a fuss about in a way because we're coming from a sonic culture. Whereas I think when people come from a visual culture, it feels more stark and it stands out for them. And people say, oh, you know, there's this amazing storytelling with sound and... It's like, well, do we go to the cinema and go, oh, there's amazing storytelling with pictures in that film. <laughs> it was really incredible that they considered doing that. So I, 
I don't think there's anything um, about the form that doesn't lend itself to storytelling. I just think culturally we're used to story being told through imagery rather than sonically. Do you think we also have a problem with the, just the kind of language, the vocabulary for talking about this kind of stuff? What's the sound equivalent of mise-en-scene? Yeah. You know, there's, we haven't ven- invented a taxonomy to discuss sound that's really stuck and cohered. And I know people like Shion have tried it and you tried it once. And everyone's had their, well, look, quite a few people have had a, had a crack at developing this language, but nothing's really stuck so that people can use these terms uh, to comfortably discuss sound and to, you know, in a way that that's, creates commonality. I think it's generally easier for most people to talk about the podcast story rather than the podcast aesthetics, to talk about what the podcast is about rather than what it sounds like audiophonically. Let's, let's, def- let's define a term before we move on. And, and now, given that you've played a bit of my show, I'm now putting your hand. So, uh, <laughs> Martin, please, uh, uh, can you define podcast aesthetics before we move on for us? Sure. So basically, aesthetics in a general sense has to do with beauty and appreciation, why we find some things particularly appealing and why other things are less appealing. And a lot of it has to do with the material itself, but a lot of it also has to do with our cultural assumptions. So, Podcasting aesthetics specifically is really describing how some people find things sonically pleasing and satisfying and about how we, you and I, listeners, get excited about stuff and want to share and write about stuff. Here's Ellen Horn, a former executive producer of Radiolab and then an executive producer at Audible. And she's talking about the aesthetic appeal of Radiolab. I also see that what people want are the heavily loved things, the things that are well-made, that are actually saying something new in the world where there's lots of editing and research and production values that are in that. You look at the top 10 of what people are listening to and they tend to be the more crafted and well-made things. And I think Radiolab did create that expectation. And so far, there haven't been a lot of people out there making that kind of podcast. So on the rest of the show, we're going to look at how some other accomplished podcasts and podcast producers create those heavily loved things that Ellen Horn mentioned. So, Martin, what's the difference between podcast aesthetics and conventional broadcast and radio aesthetics. Okay. Well, a lot of it we mention in other episodes. Maybe the most important thing is that it's very easy to repeat listen to podcast. This means that producers can include stuff that we don't necessarily need to take in on the first pass, on the first listen. They can hide things that real devotees can kind of uncover and discover for added pleasure. This is Brendan Baker, who was part of the Love and Radio production team. And he's talking about exactly this. The different ways he thinks about aesthetics for radio and aesthetics for podcasts, and his different ways of editing for each medium. So when I'm working on a radio piece, I'm primarily concerned with, you know, how well the information is getting transmitted and clarity. And I'm very conscious of the fact that people won't have the opportunity to rewind. So everything has to sort of, you have to get it the first time around. Whereas particularly in love and radio, sometimes we're intentionally being abstract or we're kind of counting on the fact that certain listeners aren't going to get all the illusions and that's okay, that you can enjoy the story on multiple levels of consciousness, that deep listeners or people who are really engaged in the story 
will listen to it multiple times. And we hear that from listeners that like, oh, I've, I've listened to the story four times or whatever. And, and that they find new things, you know, on multiple listens. So when I'm working on a podcast, I'm consciously thinking about that. Like, how can I kind of hide Easter eggs or encode details or create more subtle experiences that people are going to interpret differently depending on their mood, depending on their setting, depending on their level of attention. Um, and I want the podcast productions that I do to work on those multiple levels. Whereas when I'm working on a radio piece, uh, I'm much more concerned with you know, how clear am I being? Is the music getting in the way? I'm less concerned with sort of maybe the emotional experience that the person is having. Martin, how much do you repeat listen to podcasts? I listen to podcasts over and over again a lot, but I that's that's the way I consume media in general. Yes, I yes, which is it's it's not at all surprising that I ended up um, uh, teaching and writing about and researching media uh, because I can I can listen to those early episodes of Radiolab from the first couple of seasons that are so beautifully crafted. I've listened to them all at least four or five times. I never ever re-listen to a podcast. I know. There's too I, much stuff to get through. There's just, just so much there. I'm in a panic to get through it all. So it's very different. The idea of going back to something yeah, is anathema to Yeah. Me. And, you know, Julie Shapiro, the executive producer of Radiotopia, when we interviewed her, she said the same thing, that uh, there's just so much stuff out there that she has to listen to stuff at faster speeds than normal. She has an app that increases the speed of the podcast she listens to so she can consume more. And I think that's crazy and such a shame. I, we should talk faster in this show then. Um, <laughs> Also, but also, I think with this, uh, earbuds make a huge difference, don't they? Absolutely. Um, so because most podcast listening happens on earbuds, producers can experiment aesthetically with techniques that would just never come off on normal speakers. And part of why Brendan Baker feels that he can do what he does is precisely this. He can create this extra level of complexity and hide these little secrets, not just because of repeat listening, but um, also, it's because of the physical way that he expects his listeners to listen. I think that podcasting, you know, just the mechanics of podcasting allow for that in a way that radio doesn't. Just the fact that uh, I'm going into the production process assuming that the majority of, the, of our listeners are going to be wearing headphones allows me to do things production-wise in terms of spatialization and just motion and creating these sort of more immersive soundscapes that while I think that they would work on radio, I don't think they're as effective as when you're, um, you know, when, when the world is, is happening in between your earphones. One of the podcasts that my teenage son, Leo, really likes to listen to, and one of the podcasts that my students get a lot out of, is Snap Judgment with Glenn Washington. Which actually, having said that I listen to loads of podcasts, is not one of the shows I listen to. <laughs> oh, Lance. Mm. Can you cuss, uh, yeah, give me a, a snap summary of it, please? Sure. Um, so Snap Judgment uh, is mostly nonfiction stories narrated by a single person, usually. Um, and it uses a lot of very movie-like sound effects and created sound effects. And uh, they really kind of layer things with sound. And, and the producers say that they do this to engage with a millennial audience that is really, really film literate. 
And are these sound effects, are they realistic or are they just there for illustrative purposes? They're, I, I think they're mostly used in an illustrative way. Um, so that's a kind of, the story's happening, a narrator's telling you what's going on, uh, and then we get sounds that illustrate points in that story. Can we hear an excerpt from it? Here's a sample from Snap Judgment. I'm 24 years old. I'm living in New York City. I was traveling from uptown to, I think it was uh, Christopher Street. I get on the train and at 42nd Street, Times Square, the train stops and a few people come in and I'm sitting in the sort of the corner of a, the subway car and across from me is an old man with a cane. There's also a young kid standing up. At first, I didn't think too much about it. Then the next stop happens at that point. I could see that the young man is very agitated. And before I know it, he literally kicks the old man in the chest. Just karate kick. And the old man doesn't have anywhere to go. And he just collapses forward and starts breathing heavy. People just started getting up, yelling, screaming, getting out of the car. I got up, but instead of getting out of the car, I went up to the kid. I said, what the hell? And he pushed me and then said something like, that old man is a faggot. He's trying to pick me up. He was sticking his tongue out at me. And he came at me again and he pushed me. So what I did was I, I left the car looking for a cop. And sure enough, there was a cop walking towards the car that I was in. And I called him over, you know, yelling and screaming at him with my hands. Come on, come on. And I went back into the car thinking that the cop was behind me. I went up to the kid and I just was like, I don't know what the hell was going on, but you're gonna get into some serious trouble here. The next thing I know, he grabs me by my coat and the train is going back and forth. And I'm trying to get loose and swinging at him and he's swinging at me. And at one point with the motion of the train, he let go of me. My shoulder cracked the glass and my entire top body just went outside the car as the train is moving, and immediately I came back in. Of course, at that point, I could have been decapitated, but what really pissed me off was my glasses fell off. Sounds like an action movie, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, if you listen to a film without watching the video, if you take that as an example in your mind, Snap Judgment is one of those podcasts that sounds an awful lot like that experience. It sounds like a film. Some of the podcast producers we interviewed were definitely interested in pushing sound and editing a bit further than that, though, weren't they? If we go back to, say, Brendan Baker and we tune in really closely to the sound design on Love and Radio, it seems a bit more naturalistic, but it also seems a little bit more subliminal. And I often feel like when I listen to Love and Radio, the mixing and the editing and the use of sound is usually happening for some bigger reason than just providing kind of straight ahead sound effects which illustrate what's going on in the story. It's, it's more than just well-timed and well-orchestrated footsteps and gunshots. And the producers of Love and Radio use musical language and they use literary language rather than film language to talk about what they're doing. Here's a clip of Brendan Baker talking about his editing on Love and Radio. I totally think about what we're doing as, as writing with sound, especially in a show like Love and Radio where we're not using any host narration. We're not sort of connecting the scenes with any extra information from the host perspective. It's always like, what can we use within the interview to to help get from point A to point B to point C. And oftentimes that really involves cutting up people's phrases syllable by syllable and sort of reconstructing them. And always, you know, maintaining the meaning, 
But I think that there's a more interesting point about like the relationship between music and narrative or music and storytelling. I think that things that feel intuitively good musically can help guide how we tell stories. It's interesting here that he thinks of narrative speech in terms of musical cadences. And elsewhere in the interview, he also talks about trying to create a stream of consciousness feel through his editing. And he takes some cues from James Joyce. And this is not the only literary reference he makes when discussing how he edits. The same way that poetry has meter or that songs have verses and choruses and that there's repetition and structure on multiple levels within songs, I like to think about different levels of organization, both within a scene and on a more macro level, looking down at like the chapters. How are they punctuated? How do they sort of rhythmically fit up against one another, both from chapter to chapter and also from like phrase to phrase? So oftentimes I am really going in and nudging syllables bit by bit just to sort of make it sort of flow and feel more rhythmic and poetic. So he's editing not just for meaning, or even primarily for meaning, he's editing for flow and rhythm and metrical structure. Yeah, here's a little snippet from Love and Radio that illustrates that point. We're looking at various newspapers that have been reproduced in this book, and one is a full page which says, Exposed! Evil cult thriving inside a temple. This vile man corrupts kids. Then there's a photograph of me. It is difficult to find the words to describe the activities of Genesis P. Orange and his pop group. But we will try. And then underlined it says, Vile, evil, sick. Depraved. Just a few that come to me. Anne Hepperman of the podcast Serendipity also talked about these literary references when we interviewed her. Uh, Serendipity is a podcast that takes the form of audio letters sent between two characters or producers as a sort of nested Russian doll feel to it. That's right. Um, And so Anne says, um, uh, in a way that's quite similar to Brendan, she spoke about editing as a new kind of experimental literature. But really importantly, uh, she considers very carefully who is listening and how they're listening. So check out this clip where she mentions her co-producer, Martin Johnson, and the Hearsay Audio Festival in Ireland, where Serendipity was born. Well, I think we have like a straight ahead, we have our ideas of what the straight ahead story is, but I think just like in literature, you know, you have cut up poems, you have things that play with the idea of linearity, you know, and I think that what we try and do with our sound design is also figure out like how we can play with the form, almost like in a film too, you know, like when you're watching a film, you have different shots and things like that. And so I think that a lot of why Martin and I clicked creatively when we met at Hearsay is that we both think of audio as having the potential to be art, but not in a way that 
pushes away listeners. Um, although I am a person who loves the idea of ex- like I love experimental music, I love drones, I love sound art, all of that stuff. But I wouldn't make a storytelling podcast that was like all drones, you know. <laughs> That was Anne Hepperman talking about trying to have some literary experiment in podcast drama, but without it being alienating. And that's quite a tough balancing act. Here's a sample from Anne Hepperman and Martin Johnson's Serendipity. Okay. My dearest Martin, I'm sitting in the lobby of the hotel where we last met. I think you told me to be here. Where are you? I'm waiting for you, but I'm not sure that I remember... My head hurts. I'm waiting for you. It's like where we last And I'm starting to forget what you look like. It's been so long since we've been together. But I don't see. Come on board. Come on board. So pull this towards me? Yeah. It only weighs six tons, Anne. Okay, I can. I got this. Yeah? Oh, God, my head hurts. There's a lot of static. I remember now. You took me on your boat. Does your boat have a name? Isa. You promised to take me to the island where you were born in the middle of the Baltic See, Sea. It will take us a couple of days to sail there. Uh-huh. That's where I take you. Sail through the night, and then we'll get there in the morning. So one of the things I want to bounce off you, Lance, about this, one of the assumptions that Anne makes quite explicitly in her interview is that we as listeners, podcast listeners, particularly podcast drama listeners, have evolved to the point where we don't need every doorbell and every footstep spelled out for us like we might have needed 60 or 70 years ago when we were listening to radio drama. Um, In terms of thinking about the evolution of audio drama, Lance, do you agree with that? Do you think we've evolved as audio drama listeners? I think in cultures where they've got used to audio drama and it's been part of the cultural fabric, then yes, that's true. Mm. But I think in podcast spheres, there's been a lot of teaching audiences how to listen or giving them framing devices to help them and also there might be something in podcast listening where you do need to spell things out a little bit more because uh, podcast listening is you know it's a mobile activity people are wandering the streets and so on and so they need a little bit more hand holding so i'd sort of agree yeah and you talk about that in great and complex detail in your chapter on podcast drama in our book, don't you? And in the episode, the podcast drama episode, which is worth finding because it's the, probably one of the better ones. This is absolutely the best one of For Your Ears Only Without a Shadow of a Doubt. One of the most ambitious and certainly one of the better funded podcasts that's gone a long way to pushing new approaches to speech is Radiolab. Yeah, and when I first started listening to Radiolab, and even more so when I first started studying it, I really couldn't help but be pulled down from that larger macro level of the story down into this kind of micro granular level of the sound. Um, The editing in Radiolab, it it really doesn't just serve a bigger narrative arc, but it's also got, got a value on its own. It's got, it's interesting to listen to 
on its own. And stuff is happening at, the, at this micro level. And when we interviewed Jad Abumrad, the producer and the co-host of Radiolab, um, he spoke over and over and over again about speech editing, particularly his speech editing on Radiolab, becoming something more like musical composition than the work on conventional documentary. I actually feel like I take most of my cues for how we operate from film and from TV. Yeah, the edits are much more, there's just a sort of vocabulary there that doesn't have to be explained. Jump cuts now, like what we might have thought of as a jump cut five or six years ago is now just sort of commonplace. So I process it through what I see more than what I hear. And um, there's a funny thing, like uh, here's, here's just two small like moments that I register that. I mean, so much of the sort of the editing is intuitive. It's hard for me to even like know how to break it down. You're just somehow like operating in a music, in internal music, you know? But uh, I remember at the very beginning, we did, I made the Sonic ID, which is like kind of our, our little like sting at the top, sort of, I was trying to figure out how, to, how do you have a theme song without a theme song? Which seems like a dumb question to ask now, but that, that was the problem I was trying to solve 10 years ago. And I put some words in and stretched them out. So they were saying like, radio lab. I was doing that. And I remember Robert heard that and he was like, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's, that's like someone talking. And I was like, I know, but why not? <coughs> You're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. We'd do that if we were like, if I was just coming from comp- composition class, we would do that constantly. Um, but there was a sense that like you can't manipulate things like that. That feels like you're breaking some compact with your audience. Now I hear that shit everywhere. You know, it's like there's that sense that like we can process everything. People expect us to. So that's kind of where I register it is that there's a there's a comfort with those kind of techniques. That almost when I hear those stings that we made makes them sound kind of old and fuddy-duddy in a way because there's, it's so on display, you know? And now it's just kind of everywhere. It's just part of the fabric of, of things. And he's very much aware that the sound ID has aged and how podcast editing has moved on from when they started podcasting well over a decade ago. Yeah, and this shift, is it's really important, and I write about it in the book, as a shift away from an analog way of thinking about audio speech to a digital, a more authentically digital way of thinking about audio speech. Given that all media is digital these days, can you define the difference between digital and analog aesthetics? Yes, yeah, and you're right. You know, what what is non-digital these days? All all images, all sounds, everything happens on a computer rather than in kind of old-fashioned technology, um, uh, old-fashioned analog technology. And that's really a key point. I'm not referring to particular pieces of kit or equipment or gear. I use digital and analog as words to describe the different ways that edited audio speech can sound and communicate. There's a kind of analog way of making and listening, and there's a kind of digital way of making and listening. So these are metaphors, the analog and the digital, when I write about it, um, are metaphors for uses and practices rather than descriptions of the way particular electric devices shape sound and shape language necessarily. So how does an analog approach work? 
Well, when I talk about an analog aesthetic, I mean something usually, not always, but usually, that's very linear. It's got this smooth flow from one voice to the next, from one scene to the next. It's got a very clear and stable point of listening also, a point of listening, much like a point of view in a film. And there's usually just one narrator, so it's, it's easy to grasp who is speaking and where they're speaking from. That's the approach of a lot of very solid, well-known Radio 4 documentary and current affairs programs, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think of the really great program File on 4 as a great example of this analog aesthetic. During the summer holidays, the boys, one of their favourite games was they, they used to go down and throw stones across the water, skimmying, they used to call it. And then we'd normally sit here and either have chips or, you know, <laughs> or an ice cream, just normal family things to us. I've come to the seafront in Penarth in Wales to meet Nadine Marshall. She's found out about the new world of probation in the hardest of ways. As we talk in the cafe on the pier, Nadine clutches photographs of her son, Connor. Connor was our first... And Radio Lab sounds quite a bit different to Final Four, doesn't it? Yeah, I think these are a great contrast, these two. I think, I think Radio Lab is much more an example of a digital aesthetic. A, a lot of the time, it's quite sonically playful. Um, often there's no fixed point of listening. Sometimes you don't even know who's speaking, and it doesn't really matter. Um, uh, at the micro level, it feels much more sculptural, like a sculpture, than it does linear, like a, a kind of narrative line. We have an excellent example from the Radio Lab episode called Things that illustrates that slippery point of listening. We're going to begin in a place. Robert, come in here. Oh, oh my God. A place full of wonderful things. This is the actual sled that Henson and Perry used to first go to the North Pole. These are Napoleon's books and his conquest to Egypt. Look at the antlers over there. Okay, so wait, where are, where are you exactly? Well, before I tell you that, let me just explain something. That was the Radio Lab episode Things. Yeah, and so if you're to compare the straight-ahead linear documentary of File on Four, which I mentioned earlier, uh, with this extract from Things, here we don't we don't always know who's speaking and where they're speaking from. Everything is happening not so much in a kind of physical scene that we can imagine, like a scene in the real world that we can identify, as it is happening in the software. You know, we're, we're listening to something that we sort of know already is assembled in a computer. And, and so the scene is really in our ears rather than a, a scene that we kind of imagine in the world, like squarely in a prison or in a cafe or on a bus. Here's a creative piece that our producers Jack and Ella put together that has a bit of fun with these ideas of analog editing and digital editing. When we're talking about technological determinism, at least in the context that we're working here, which is creative media making, the obvious place to start is Marshall McLuhan. Um, techno technological determinism is originally a Marxist idea uh, that suggests that a society's technology determines lots and lots of stuff, like the social order, cultural values, shared meanings and understandings, and even the way it progresses and evolves. Um, McLuhan, though, focuses on specifically on communication. 
No, I think it was before that. On tape, you've got rust, which is what gets turned into sound. This is what reads that those magnetised um, particles. Scrub backwards and forwards, find the bit, mark the bit, take the bit out, cut it, stick it back together. Mm -hmm. In his book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, with the example... Okay, I have no idea where I am now. McLuhan, though, focuses on, specifically on communications technology. I really um, can't remember where I started. <laughs> okay. <laughs> determines lots and lots of stuff, like the social order, okay, I re I remember hearing values, this. shared meanings and understandings, and even the way it progresses and evolves. Okay, that was the end of the sentence that I needed to cut out. So let's do a little chop. So we'll use the Chinograph pencil. If you just mark a little bit on, on the actual back of the tape. So we'll give it some slack now, and we'll so it's not tight in the uh, in the reels here, and we'll pull it through so that we can chop it. And so we're going to mark again on here. All right, so now we're going to have to pull that section out and we'll find the two bits of um, marked tape that you okay. marked. Uh, so there's that first one. Yeah. See, this, is, this has already taken 20 times longer than it would take. All right, so we've got two points there that we're going to cut. We're going to cut this piece out. Okay, All right. the bit in the middle goes. That's going. Right, so what we want to do then is put it in this little chopping block here. Okay. Right. And we're going to cut. Well, you're going to cut. Oh. Right, so which which one do you want to use? Do you want to use the, the most what, what, oblique what, one, the medium what's, one? What, what's the difference between them? So the reason we've got different angles on here is so that you've got more or less chance of having a dropout. And you want what's less. What's a dropout? You don't want the audio to come back. Got, you've got, you don't want the audio to disappear and come back Okay. as you're playing this thing through. So right. if we've got a crossover from one splice to another, one splice to another, one splice to another, you don't want the audio to disappear and come back Okay. as you're playing this angled one, yeah, whereas with that straight one it's just a straight cut. Okay, I cut the tape and part of the table... And there's the other bit. Okay, I think I've done that. How long's that though? How many meters do you think that is? But how many me's is it? It's one. Sort of two and a half, half me's. It's quite a lot of tape for a very short sentence. Right, now we can join these two bits. Okay, and so now I do the tape bit. The easy bit. Okay, I cut the tape all right. Right, now we need to feed it back in. Do you want to turn that around? To spin and, the, yeah, just wind it the wheel. Yeah. And then we'll make sure there's no kinks in it. 
Should we press play? See what happens. Shall I do it? Yeah, do it. The moment of. Well, we're gonna have to wind it back. Oh, okay. Come on. <laughs> Why doesn't it work? Have we done something? Yeah, we've done an edit. Context that we're working here, which is creative media making. The obvious place to start is Marshall McLuhan. McLuhan so hey. focuses on specifically hey. on communications technology. I didn't mess it up. To revel in my own success. And I'll say where the edit is. At least in the context that we're working here, which is creative media making, the obvious place to start is Marshall McLuhan. Edit. McLuhan, though, focuses on... I think you've passed the test. Hooray! You don't have to use computers anymore. Anymore. So that was one edit. That was one edit. I don't know how long that and took. And that took... A few mins. Several hours. <laughs> For your ears Another key thing that this shift, this evolution towards a digital aesthetic that Jad mentions and Anne Hepperman uh, alludes to is we, we seem to have arrived at a place where we don't need a lot of the conventional framing devices that we used to rely on in, in radio making and radio listening. Um, for nonfiction programs, we don't need a lot of the introductions that are repeated and the handoffs that happen quite formulaically. And for podcast drama, we don't need a lot of the framing devices like answering machines or audio diaries anymore. We don't we don't need to have these things explained anymore. We're much more comfortable in this digital space. And the, another good example of this digital aesthetic is on display in the episode Watching You, Watching Me. And we all had to do everything. I mean, Alan... The man with the hidden microphone may even get around to you someday. That man was Alan. Alan was the arbiter, obviously, of whether we did something or didn't do something. So what was, like, what was the goal for the show? The goal was to, you know, was to reflect people as they are in their unguarded moments. We try to bring you the real McCoy on candid microphone. That's what fascinated fun, the beauty of everyday conversation. We go out of the studio into the world. Everyday life. Capture our candid glimpses of people like you. What the sociologist Irving Goffman calls bugging the backstage, right? <laughs> so what we would do is... Every day, Sonny and crew would go to their office in Manhattan. This two-room office. And sit down at their desks. And think up ideas, separately scratching our heads and say to Alan, what about this? How about you? I gotta shave every day. If I don't shave, my wife gets right after me. Like, what if we bugged a barbershop or a magazine stand? Oh, maybe that's something we could, you know... Did you see those green shoes? Or... Green! A restaurant or a shoe store. I don't know where to get... So what they do is they take this big, clunky, portable recorder. It was like a suitcase. It weighed, I think, maybe 60 pounds, but they put a handle on top and said it's portable. 
there you have the Radiolab episode watching you watching me as an excellent example of the characteristics of that digital aesthetic in audio editing practice. Multiple voices weave in and out in a sort of tapestry fashion. There's no stable point of listening within any recognizable scene. We bounce from conversation to interview to archive recording to studio narration without any contextualization. And it's filled with these meticulously managed high-speed tiny interjections and overlaps. Lots of other people have noticed what I'm calling this digital aesthetic, and we're going to give the last word on this to Miranda Sawyer, audio critic of The Observer. Speech programmes are very built in Britain because most speech programmes happen on Radio 4 and they have very particular ways of making these programmes, which drive me mad. And so the freedom of, of podcasting for creative people who are into sound is really brilliant. A lot of it reminds me of music, actually, because the sound techniques particularly something like Radio Lab or Welcome to Night Vale or, or, or something, there's a lot of imagination in the sound techniques that reminds me of just, you know, some music bloke sitting at home playing around with sounds. It's a very similar kind of thing, you know, and that's, it's, there's that care that goes into it, but also that slightly creative nerdiness that goes into it. It's a very similar thing, I think. And if you want to know more about this subject and have a more in-depth read into it, there's a section in our book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, which is out with Bloomsbury. This this is very like a handoff at the end of the show, isn't it? Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that. This is a very clear handoff indeed. I thought we didn't need that anymore. <laughs> so that's the end of this instalment of For Your Ears Only. I'm Lance Dan. And I'm Martin Spinelli. Please follow us on social media at Ears Only Podcast. And you can find us on the web at earsonlypodcast.com. So Lance, what are we going to do on the next episode of For Your Ears Only? We're changing the format up. No. Yeah, For the yeah. last episode, we're changing yeah. the format? Well, you know, it's something a bit different. So because we, we began writing this book in 2014, right? Yeah. And it's, we sort of finished about 20, early 2018. Um, and it's, we kind of felt that it was time to update the ideas, just look at what's changed since we finished writing and where movement has occurred. Some things that we predicted, some things that we didn't predict. And so we're going to have a roundtable, a bunch of people together talking about the state of podcasting today. That's right. We're going to have Michael Bull, who's also known as Professor iPod from the University of Sussex. We're going to have Fiona Sturgis, who is a media critic for the Financial Times. And we're going to have our own really, really skilled and creative producer, Ella Gray Thomas, join the conversation. And me and you. And me and you, of course. Yeah. So that's next week. Something different. For Your Ears Only was produced by Jack F. Dewars and Ella Gray Thomas. This episode was written and presented by Martin Spinelli and Lance Dan. And Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound and also taught Ella how to edit tape. We had support from Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM. And we had support in our initial interviews from a British Academy Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com.